Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last Best Hope for Trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-host, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, have you seen anything out there in hyperspace? Trash. In the shape of a doctor. (laughs) That's what I've seen. (laughs) I've certainly, I certainly heard something strange at night, but I think it was just my cat breaking into my closet and chewing my shoes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, tonight we are going to be discussing two episodes for Babylon 5 Season 2. Uh, it's going to be Episode 4, A Distant Star, and Episode 5, The Long Dark. I uh, believe, Anna, you've got us for A Distant Star. How about you take us away? Yeah, so this episode is written by DC Fontana and directed by Jim Johnston. Uh, DC Fontana, we stan. So for I, uh, I have attempted to keep my summary brief here. So for this episode, we've got a whole new ship visiting the station. The very unfortunately named Cortez, captained by Jack Maynard. The ship is an Earth Force Explorer-class vessel and is visiting B-5 to pick up supplies in preparation for another years-long stretch charting the rim. It also turns out that Maynard is an old friend of Sheridan's, and in fact was Sheridan's first CO. The two catch up, and Maynard is skeptical that Sheridan actually enjoys his new post, since it's not what he trained for, nor what he spent most of his time in Earth Force doing, uh, i.e. exploring the rim. Sheridan reassures Maynard that although he might be tied to a desk, it's a hell of a desk to be tied to, but he's clearly rattled by this conversation and uh, proceeds to snap at Garibaldi for giving him a report on station petty crime. With more catching up over drinks, the conversation turns to weird shit on the rim. The Cortez, as an exploration ship, has spent a lot of time in hyperspace, and the B-5 Star Fury pilot, Keffer, asks Maynard whether the rumors are true, that there's something living in hyperspace. Maynard is taken aback by the the question, um, but replies that he has indeed seen something out there that is stranger than any of us can imagine. And Sheridan notes that this isn't the first time he's heard of something weird happening on the rim. Maynard goes on to briefly describe what he's seen, and uh, it, it's a black ship that blots out the stars, which we have previously seen taking out the uh, Narn outpost at Malari's request. Sheridan escorts Maynard back to the Cortez as it prepares to leave and says that he wishes he were going with him. Maynard tries to reassure Sheridan by saying it's just a job, but... Sheridan calls his BS, uh, saying that the the adventure is out there, Jack. A man just has to go meet it. And in return, Maynard tells Sheridan that the adventure might find him instead. 
The Cortez leaves through the jump gate on its way back to the rim. Sheridan's bad mood unfortunately continues, this time being taken out on Ivanova. She points out that he's been a jerk ever since the Cortez arrived, and Sheridan does open up to her, explaining that he's used to commanding starships, not cities, and that he's frustrated by the trivia of the job. Not only that, he's frustrated at having to act as a bureaucrat and politician. Now that the honeymoon period is over on the new job, Sheridan is doubting that he's the right person to be commanding B-5. We flip back to the Cortez, now traveling in hyperspace. As disaster strikes, a reactor spike disables the ship's tracking system, setting them adrift in hyperspace. The ship sends a mayday, which is received by Babylon 5. The station scrambles pilots and assembles a plan. A group of Star Furies will enter hyperspace and form a lifeline out from the gate in hopes of finding the missing ship. Before they depart, Sheridan quotes an ancient Egyptian blessing. God be between you and harm in all the empty places you must walk. The plan works, and the Star Fury chain finds the Cortez, only for disaster to strike again. One of the mysterious black spider ships appears and collides with the last two uh, Star Furies in the chain, destroying one and disabling the stabilizers on Kaffir's ship. Kaffir still manages to point the Cortez in the correct direction by firing his ship's gun, but there is no time for the Cortez to pick him up, and thus it heads back to B-5 without him. Overall, the mission was a success, although with the loss of the two pilots. Uh, Our next Sheridan scene is in the garden, where I guess he went to de-stress. He speaks with Delenn about the burdens of command and the loss of the pilots, and the two have a heart-to-heart about what it means to be in the right place at the right time. Sheridan is still not entirely convinced that he's in the right place, commanding B-5, and Delenn gives one of my favorite speeches from the show. The molecules of your body are the same- are the same molecules that make up this station and the nebula outside that burn inside the stars themselves. We are star stuff. We are the universe made manifest, trying to figure itself out. And as we have both learned, sometimes the universe requires a change of perspective. Back out in hyperspace, Kefir is still alive and has repaired his ship, but is lost and running out of air. However, another of the black spider ships appears and gives Kefir the course information he needs to find his path back to the jump gate and B-5. He is promoted to commander of the Star Fury Wing and vows to find out exactly what that weird ship was. We also have, over the course of the episode, a couple of B-plot-ish threads. The first of which is Garibaldi, Ivanova, and Sheridan uh, all having checkups with Franklin and being put on food plans, which is deeply unpopular with everyone. In particular, this interferes with Garibaldi's plan to make banya cauda for his birthday, and he attempts to get the ingredients illicitly, but is found out by Franklin. Garibaldi explains that he makes the dish every year to remember his father, and Franklin joins him for the meal and maybe learns to be less of a stick in mud. No, he Spoiler doesn't. alert, he doesn't. No. <laughs> Delenn has a checkup with Franklin as well, and an interaction with a representative of the other Mimbari on the station, who are uncomfortable with her transition and who plan to send a message directly to the Grey Council about the matter. That definitely won't come back to uh, haunt us later. Nope. God. Totally. Fine. I'm such a caring. And that's the episode. 
yeah, this is a. I think this is a really interesting episode. Um, we we get a little bit here of uh, Sheridan's pre B five history, which I think is we or we get some we get some fun bits here with Maynard and sort of like a, a different look at Sheridan after our first three episodes of Mister White Eye Baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it definitely feels like it's. Is that moment of, as I think maybe foreshadowed by Sheridan's sister, as much as we all hate Sheridan's sister, that she's also kind of asking, like, is this really what you want to be doing? This is this does not seem to be your bag. Yeah. He earnestly reassures her that this is indeed his bag. And then when he's having essentially the same conversation with Maynard, he's much less certain that the the honeymoon period has definitely worn off and the realities of the job are setting in. Yeah, agreed. And I think that that's something that a situation that a lot of us have probably been in of, you know, starting a new job or a new organization or something new and being very excited and then having at some point, you know, the realities set in and realizing that this is a thing that you're doing for the foreseeable future and that it's not just good stuff. Yeah. I love the development with Sheridan. I think it's all really good stuff in establishing. They are like doing some intensive work to dis- to establish his character. And this is another good episode of that showing how he's growing into this role really quickly. Um, So I really like that stuff. I really like, the captain of the quarter, the unfortunately named Cortez. I think their relationship is really funny and fun. And I totally buy that the two of them were buddies and like you get the easy camaraderie between them. Mm -hmm. And that's established right at the beginning when Ivanova is like, there's a rather rude message for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Unless all of your friends call you swamp rat. Yeah. I don't like the name of the Cortez. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, not, I, not a good name for a ship. Yeah. And there's uh, last episode, Justin alluded to uh, a super unfortunate uh, bit of fan interaction that JMS had on the message boards that is archived via Lurker's Guide. Um, and I'm just going to read it. And it sucks. Uh, so... Uh, when asked why a name asked about the name, this is his response. Should a ship have been named after Cortez, considering what effect his arrival had on the Native Americans? If Cortez has had not landed in northern Mexico, do you think it would have remained undiscovered until now? Fact one, somebody was bound to discover the Americas. Fact two, any sufficiently advanced civilization or culture will inevitably attempt to exploit any civilization or culture not sufficiently advanced to fight back on a level playing field. Blaming explorers for exploring has always seemed really kind of silly. Do people really think that if Columbus hadn't landed here, it'd be 1994 and we still wouldn't know the world was round and that this continent wasn't here? It doesn't matter who discovered it. The same result would have come. Somebody had to discover it sooner or later. Which is... Big yikes. The worst answer. Yeah. No, this is the worst answer. Like, it, it, it's, I think it might even be worse 
than him saying, well, we should celebrate Cortez because of his expo- of his explorations. It is an attempt to dodge it by just tossing your hands up. Saying, the, so the, qu- the original question is like, should a ship have been named Cort- after Cortez, considering what effect his arrival had on the Native Americans? If Cortez had not landed in northern Mexico, do you think it would have remained undiscovered? And he answers the second part, because that's the easy one, and then gives like a vague hand wave to the first part, but it completely ignores the whole effect on the Native Americans, the whole like rape and genocide and, and all that inconvenient and even, stuff. Even the second part of the question, like asking that alongside the first part is so like nonsensical to me. Hold on, I, I want to take a look at that because that sounds like that sounds like he's restating. It sounds like he's asking that. No, so yeah, the way the way it's so yeah, the, the way it's formatted on Lurker's Guide, if uh, they they put the um, they put listener questions in italics, and oh yeah yeah yeah, and the the, the part if Cortez and not land, so that's him being an ass. Oh good yeah yeah so the yeah the. F- the first line, should a ship not have been named after Cortez, considering what effect his arrival had on Native Americans? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And then his his response was everything else. So, yeah, he's just being a, a, a bag of assholes about it. No. Yeesh. It's like the most, it's like the most it is white the, dude answer. Yeah, it's the most 90s white dude answer, where he's trying to avoid any possible implication that a white man did something wrong in history with a vague hand wave at justifying it via, well, history was bad and don't you want, don't you want explorers to explore? It's an, it's an absolutely God awful answer. Yeah. I think this is a thing that it's like, okay, so here's the thing I can see with how shitty earth is in B5 that they would totally name a ship the Cortez. Yeah. But I also want the writers creating material to do better. I just prefer not to have people who committed genocide referenced, you know, unless you're going to dissect what naming an explorer ship the Cortez means, you know. Yeah. There's two problems with this answer. Yeah. The first is it shouldn't have been done in the first place. Unless you were, as you said, unless you're going to interrogate that naming, unless you do it for a reason. The second is the answer itself, he doesn't recognize at this time. In 1994, JMS does not recognize the harm that Cortez has done. And he's dis- he's arrogantly dismissive of it in this answer. And I... Don't know if he is more educated now on the subject than he was then. I would hope so. But this answer, this answer is ignorant. Not even, not even bordering. This, this answer is racist in, in the way that like, it's, it's like it's nineties white person racist bordering on just, just racist. Uh, and that's that's that sucks to to read something from an author from a writer that you respect, and who has done okay on this kind of stuff in other places to just like drop a turd in a pool like this thing. 
it really feels okay. So I, I joked about this in our last episode with how Lurker's Guide was real, like proves that the internet hasn't changed. This feels mm-hmm. like somebody calling out, like adding, like like tagging a writer on Twitter and saying, "Hey, this is a little bit fucked up," and the writer just decided to qu- tweet them and like double down. Yeah, 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 yeah. The it has exactly that energy. Yeah. I think he's lucky that this is on a news group from the 90s and not on Twitter where people can read it now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think there's also, in addition to the racism, I think that there's the there's a kind of sideways additional bit of racism in that he is not interrogating the fact that, like, not not all cultures are imperialistic and genocidal (laughs) right right like the 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 idea of like well it would have happened eventually any sufficiently advanced civilization or culture will inevitably attempt to exploit any civilization or culture not sufficiently advanced to fight back and that's that's something that stood out to me as a very dark piece of his worldview yeah no i think what you mean is any sufficiently white culture Uh, i mean historically speaking that's an accurate statement you know, outside of that, you get into more dubious territory. But any sufficiently advanced white culture certainly will do that. Yeah. And it's it's weirdly a worldview that comes out in this show fairly and not always in a bad way. That no. like that comes out with the Centauri, clearly. Yeah. But I think that he could have stood to think about that substantially more and realize that not all cultures follow the same yeah. values and such. Yeah. Oh, so that sucked. I'll say that when I was typing, when I was typing up the summary, my fingers somehow kept uh, spelling it the cortex instead of the Cortez. <laughs> and I was like, fingers, you, you clearly are onto something here. Yeah. It's such a weird mixed bag. Yeah, right? there's our 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 basically our our, our sinking ship uh, story is pretty cool. Like I think that, yeah, I think we, I, we get a, we get some cool looks into like how hyperspace works. Yes and no. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> okay how it doesn't work. Okay, kind of? <laughs> how it okay doesn't so work. yes, this is one of those things where I'm gonna say that. This is where it was written like a Star Trek episode, um, that particular plot line, which yeah. is perhaps not surprising given the writer, in that it it has like just enough techno babble to kind of make sense, but then when you think about it for like an additional ten minutes, it no longer makes sense. Um, like the whole thing is that the Cortez like is lost and adrift in hyperspace. But it has its own jump engine. So, like, it could certainly doing, like, a blind punch out of hyperspace would be dangerous because you don't know where you'd end up. But, Mm. like, space is pretty empty. The odds are pretty good that you're not going to end up, like, in the middle of a planet. So I'm suddenly developing a theory as to how that awful Cortez quote happened because almost the entire rest of the Lurker's page on this episode is him defending the hyperspace tech oh, behind, no. behind that that this exact thing and like 
getting a little bit testy with people trying to like make sense of the hyperspace uh, science. He is such a crybaby. Yeah, there are definitely times <laughs> he, where it reads like that. Anytime anybody like mentions Star Trek in one of those like lurkers guy things, he gets into like he gets he becomes a little defensive crybaby. Yeah. So I wonder if he didn't spend like six hours on Usenet, like fighting people about how it really does actually make sense and it totally is it totally is rational that the Cortez would get lost like this. And then at the very end of the night, somebody's like, hey, isn't Cortez kind of racist? And he's like, okay, fuck you, man. And he just like pounds out this super racist reply. Which, of course, it, that that doesn't excuse the fact that it no, was still in his head all along. Yeah, no. Not an excuse. I'm Have just saying, yeah. like, this. It, the answer is so bad that, like, I wonder if it wasn't one of those things where he just, like, rage tweeted it. Like, I recognize yeah. that, like, I recognize, like, it was harder to log off at that point in life because you had to disconnect your phone line. It's <laughs> 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 like, dude, you should. Um, I mean, like... As somebody who doesn't think about these things, because I just like to be like, you know, head up the thoughts uh, while watching this episode, just let stuff come to me. But it's like, oh, hey, this is a perfectly salvageable plot. This is like, I don't think like I was like, oh, could they've gone into hyperspace? I just assume you can't go into you can't like open a new gate once you once you've had that another one. Um, It is very much like Anna said, it's one of those plots that makes sense until you start trying to interrogate it. My favorite part of this episode, though, is that it does it. It also doesn't hold up if you compare it to like any other storyline in the show that that like lays down any rules about hyperspace. I think I think it was Alfred yeah. Hitchcock who who calls that a fridge plot, where you don't where you 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 see the episode, you're fine with it until it's ten thirty in the evening. You walk to the fridge to get a. You walk to the fridge to get a drink. You open the fridge. You're bending over. Your ass is in the air, and you start thinking about the plot. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, accurate, accurate. Yeah, which, which, and like personally for me, that's fine. I'm like, I'm okay. With yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not super hung up on you know everything must be logically consistent at all times. It's mostly like. Yeah, if you if you think about it just a little bit, like certainly if the Cortez didn't have its own jump engine, um, like if it were a much more standard Earth ship, yeah, um, it would be completely fucked, yeah, plausibly. But the Cortez is like they make such a big deal about it being an exploratory ship, which means that it has to have its own jump engine, it which means jump that gates. like of course it, it has a jump engine, yeah, right, right. So yeah, it's that that's the part where it's like things don't quite quite add up. Um but I do like the idea of the the kind of like drifts and eddies and the the idea that they they navigate off of signals from the from the jump gates. Yeah, that part's consistent. They keep that pretty consistent going forward. But And and especially I like the idea that hyperspace is just like this massively compressed space, but that also, you know, distance doesn't necessarily track in a one-to-one mm-hmm. fashion. Yeah, it's not a rational space. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I do, I do like those bits. So I'll, I'll yeah. give it that. Also, the Cortez just looks fucking cool. Like it has an awful name. It's a really cool design. 
Um, I like the sense of scale you get from it. How um, you get some you get some cool sort of just like natural exposition for how an explorer ship like that works, like that they yeah. construct jump gates, and mm-hmm. that they and that they yeah. they're also like in charge of like repairing remote uh, repo- remote facilities and automated systems, which is just like it's a really interesting thing. It's um the the when I was just like doing my like sort of notes while rewatching this last evening, it honestly reminded me of like um how maybe possibly to a greater extent old like age of sail vessels would operate. Like how mm. how if you were on a ship of the line, you know, you would you you know you could spend a year you could spend years away from port visiting other places and being out mm-hmm. and like you you would have a number number of duties seen in a bunch of places and that's what I was honestly reminded of. It's uh Yeah. And yeah. It's also just enormous. It's um it's if you look at the scaling, it's almost as long as Babylon five. Yeah. Uh, I really like Earth Force ship design. Like Centauri ships look dumb. I, I'm sorry, but their ships they, look, they look like, like somebody they look took like their horseshoe hair. crabs. No, yes, but they it, they look like somebody took Centauri hair as an inspiration model for their ships, which is stupid. I like uh, Narn ships pretty well, and Minbari ships look like fish, which is a little <laughs> stupid, but fine. But Earth Force ships look grounded in a, in a way that, like, they don't look like they don't look like concept art. Like that's what yeah. I like about the Narn ships. The Narn ships look like they could have been something that somebody actually built and designed, whereas the Centauri ships just look like some like a uh, you know a teenager's concept art. And if we're and if we're talking irritating. concept art ships, I feel like you know a lot of the ships from the League are much more interesting this than the Centauri ships that they've got like Agreed. weird glowy lights and are like shaped yeah. strangely. Yeah. This one has a giant glowing testicle hanging off the front of it for no reason anybody can determine. <laughs> Who knows why? Who cares? It looks cool. If you're gonna yeah, go exactly. weird, go weird. Don't half ass it. I don't want like a a bunch of hair fringes glued together at weird angles. <laughs> Give me weird. I just thought like do you know who I would love to see do a Babylon 5 comic like about like with the shadows involved? Bill Sienkiewicz. Boy, howdy. Like just like I would love to see him draw a shadow ship. Yeah. Uh, God. <laughs> do you think he does commissions still? I know he does movie posters. That would be buck wild. Like, that, that's that's sort of like like if I if I, if I had to like picture that mentally, that would be the style I would do it. But um listeners yeah. Um, Bill Sienkiewicz is a uh, fantastic artist who uh, Jude and I primarily know from X-Men. He's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very frenetic. Yeah. Going back to the episode, I had other stuff I wanted to say about this episode. Uh, what was it? Oh. We have lots of stuff. I mean, we've got we've got some solid, awful Franklin content. Yeah, let's talk about this. I want to finish off the the B plot and then we can get because there's some real good solid content there. First of all, fuck Franklin. Like this, there's this is a real good solid aperitif to the next episode where I'm going to do nothing but talk about how fucking awful Franklin is. But this body shaming horseshit he gets into in this episode, I'm all for 
Don't get me wrong. Eating healthy, if that's your thing, do your thing. Whatever. But he he comes out of nowhere with this like, okay, as you point out in your notes, Anna, like, okay, you've been in a coma. Maybe you should improve your diet just a little bit because like maybe you need to clean up yeah. your corpse. Like your metabolism needs to return to normal. Like for yeah. for for Ivanova and um who just had a you know broken bones and for yeah. Garibaldi who is recovering from a gunshot wound yeah. and was just in a coma, you know, that it it kind of makes sense to be like, hey, you got some deficiencies, like you should probably be eating more more X, less yeah. Y. Here's keep it in mind. And here's where Franklin is an asshole. One, he doesn't deliver it. Well, one, I refuse to believe that a guy that's got a magic wand can't give them a fucking like supplement to to cover <laughs> 90% of this. Two, BMI is horseshit. And the fact that he's like body shaming them with their BMIs is is nonsense. I, I know he doesn't use that phrase, I don't believe. But I mean, that's what he's doing. He's like... Yeah. Like going down the chart and doing the X and Y axis on him. And three, he's basically just like, you're too fat. Like, okay, tubby, time to hit hit the salads. Like, he's really fucking like cliche 90s doctor. You need to eat a, a fucking salad. Like, it's just crappy. And it's and Sharon's reaction to it is so bizarre as well, because we've had like three episodes thus far of him being really excited about fresh fruit and vegetables. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. like it makes sense that like, you know, Sheridan's been like living on a like, you know, he's been living on like a deep spaceship, eating yeah. like basic he's basically been eating MREs or whatever the twenty-third century equivalent of it is. Yeah. And like which is probably just like, you know, he's probably eating the dessert too, which is designed to make his yet. Um, but like <laughs> the like and, and like it makes sense that he would gain weight after like going to a, a place where he could eat real people food again. Like, like, you know, yeah. every, like, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. The like, only redeeming thing about this whole storyline is one, the bit that. Uh, Ivanova has about the expanding Russian frontier, oh, yeah. which makes me laugh every time because it's delivered so dryly. It's such a good I- Ivanova line. And uh, although although Franklin's reply to it is disgusting. Well, yeah. yes, because it's Franklin. That's okay. a given. I, I do and, think the scene where they're all on the Zocalo and they look at each other's yep. plates and they do it's so cute. It's And that is exactly where I was going. The the switching scene is some fucking Laurel and Hardy shit. It's some three stooges <laughs> not like l- stuff. I like that That's, scene. That scene is so good. Um it's, it's honestly adorable. It's like it's it's I think it's like the it might be like the first scene that all three of them, it's one of the, like, the first scenes that all three of them are in. Yeah, it, it definitely adds, like, camaraderie between the three. Yeah. yeah. I also really enjoy Sheridan's, like, initial fuck you reaction to Franklin, where Franklin's like, well, we can lose those 10 pounds in no time. And, uh, and Sheridan's just like, who's this we? <laughs> like, yeah, like. There's no we here. Yeah. 
um, and kind of call it that he does kind of call Franklin out, but then ends up on the food plan anyway. Yeah. But the the food swap, the, there's like good acting moments with the with like Sheridan and Ivanova and the three of them. But yeah, like overall, it's just garbage. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I like about this side plot is uh, I'm I am on record uh, thinking that Garibaldi's trash, but I actually really like his storyline in this about the Balnacalda. Um, yeah, I think it's a really nice little storyline about how it's about his dad, and it's like the one episode where we like him. Yeah, if you ever actually had the Bangkauda, they're fucking amazing. Justin, you probably because you live in the Bay Area, and you've probably had either dragged someone or been dragged to the Stinking Rose in San Francisco. I have not. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, assuming it's not gone after this uh, pandemic has destroyed modern civilization as we know it the stinking rose is a restaurant in san francisco in um little italy uh, or in north beach sorry in north beach that specializes in garlic like Mm. you can get like a hundred chicken uh a hundred garlic chicken or a hundred clove chicken and like everything's garlic and you can get a balnacauda there and it's amazing it's basically just like garlic pate like garlic soup pate that you just dunk bread in and it's amazing it tastes it tastes amazing it's so good i'm honestly considering making it for new year's so you should give it a shot because i'm just i'm just curious now like i know they've got some stuff on like pot stickers or something like for the what so what do you dip in that I so the stinking rose serves it with no uh well the stinking rose serves it with sourdough bread toasted like you know like the 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 long baguette you uh-huh. whack it on whack it uh-huh. on an angle and toast it and you put just a just a tiny bit of butter on it it'd you, be and it'd be toasted toasted probably something that it would be just a little bit crispy on the outside but still soft on the inside uh-huh. Uh-huh. where's my vaccine where's my vaccine <laughs> yeah <laughs> and man it's so good because you just it just soaks up all that oil and all of the. Uh. Let's go find the lock on beacon there. We can head back to the jump gate. Um, yeah, I think this is like it's it's a there's some my my like sort of like just recap of those episodes was just like Franklin realizes that he should probably maybe give some like eating like some direction to help, you know to help one of his patients with recovery in terms of you got shot. You were just in a coma. You did some pretty heavy surgery here. Let's put, well, you know, here's some, here's some general guidelines for foods you should maybe avoid while you recover. And then just goes power crazy. Yeah. And his, his point about like, you know, that people on the crew, you know, skip meals, etc., is also like not an awful point. But he just takes it way too far. Yeah, no, it comes out of a place of like, hey, I actually care about you. And it's like, okay, listen, I know. Like, it's just like, I, I, I sort of kind of actually appreciate the fact that it's like, like that, like Babylon 5 recognizes that all of its officers live like fucking gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> like that they just eat whatever they want. Or they, they just eat whatever they can grab. They get no sleep. And they're all just like workaholic nightmares. <laughs> The problem boils down to the fact that Franklin has no bedside manner and 
the ethical values of a piece of moldy cheese. <laughs> sort of well, boils down to. So the problem is that he's he's confused bedside matter with bedside, bedside matter. matter. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Excellent. I honestly am surprised that um, like, he does not hit on the lab. Uh, uh, he does not hit on the lab. He just has yeah. like creepy, weird medical curiosity that like, if we want to go for like the trans metaphor here, it just gets a little awkward. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Do, do we do we want to do we want to jump out of this episode? Well, I there were there were a few other things that I wanted to talk about with the a plot. One of the things I wanted to talk about is how much I love Delenn's star stuff speech. Yeah, it's, that's a good one. It's one of the standout moments in the entire five-year run of the show for me. It's also one of the first really solid moments where we have both Sheridan and Delenn in the same scene. And he's not just like obviously googly eyesing at her. <laughs> They don't, they're not subtle about that telegraph, are they? No, no. no. <laughs> subtle as um, a crowbar. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's, it's such a good speech. And I mean, you know, we can, we can all joke about, you know, whether this means that Carl Sagan was, you know, actually Mimbari soul. I mean, I think that's evident. But it's, it's a really good, it's a really good speech. And, you know, the way that it, turns Sheridan's viewpoint around and then the the clincher on the speech is when Sheridan is then talking to Ivanova in his office after he's like cleaned his desk and everything and it's like have you ever have you ever had a long heart to heart with Delenn she seems to have a special relationship with the universe and then Ivanova just comes back with well doesn't everyone and it's like Ivanova has probably had the exact same conversation with Delenn yeah and it's it's really it's really nice. I really like it. Agreed. I also really like the very questionable Egyptian blessing. I I don't think it's actually Egyptian. I couldn't find anything about it actually being an ancient Egyptian blessing. So let's just go with it being a like nice saying. Everything I could find on it suggested that it was just something Harlan Ellison made up for the episode. Uh, it yeah. is a quote. Yeah, it's it's Harlan Ellison quoted it in his uh, short story, Paladin of the Lost Hour. But I don't, it's a chicken egg thing. I don't know which came first, the the quote in his short story or the episode. Like, it's not real clear from uh, Lurker's Guide whether, what the, the, the timing there is, so... But yeah, set, setting aside that it's pretty questionable to call it an ancient Egyptian blessing because, like, that's a real culture with real sayings. Yeah, it's it's a little saying that's kind of stuck in my head over the years. I like it; it's very good. So, is that it for the episode? I think so. Okay, so I'm gonna bring some stuff, just like some, some quick fire things from my original notes. I thought that Maynard was intended to be an antagonist at first, and then he was like trying to fish for something. And originally, like during the first scene with Garibaldi, I thought that Franklin's like sort of meal plan thing was sort of cute, and then it quickly grew out of control. So, so this is like that was like my original take on this. So that was good to know that's yeah. Still 
That's definitely a case of, well, that escalated quickly. Yeah. Oh, I also I also noted, this is a funny one. Those ships in hyperspace, which I'll, I'll later learn shadow ships, sort of look like Minbari bone crowns. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Most of these notes happen when I, when it's like after 10 o'clock at night. So this is like, this is like basically like the equivalent of me just like, late night tweeting so this is who knows how that could be i have somebody for the you know hey i know your face bit which is that captain maynard is played by rust hamlin who folks are likely to know from twin peaks where he plays dr jacoby which is extra wild because the next episode uh the long dark was written by a twin peaks writer huh that is weird are we ready to move on to that shit show? Yeah, let's go to. <laughs> All right. Episode 2.5, The Long Dark, written by Scott Frost, directed by Mario DeLeo. Welcome once again to our recurring segment, Jude Hates Dr. Franklin. I'm your host, Jude. This episode sucks. Uh, but like so many of B5's lowest moments, it does have some redeeming qualities, which we'll get to. Uh, let's get this over with. The episode begins with a ship drifting out of deep space towards the station, broadcasting a signal in English, oddly enough. This is the Copernicus. We come in peace. We're then introduced to Amos, played by Dwight Schultz, who you may or may not know from TV. I don't know. Show called Star Trek. Maybe. Uh, who pops out of a heap of trash like some kind of crazy-haired jack-in-the-box in what could not be a more perfect metaphor for this fucking episode. He's playing crazy with all the subtlety of a 50 caliber deck gun. He ends up in the Zocalo harassing diners, Jakar, and then Londo before being grabbed by Garibaldi and hauled off to the drunk tank. Next, the command crew meets on the bridge to look at the ship, and Sheridan gets to show off what a nerd he is by recognizing that it's a pre-jump gate deep space sleep ship. They detect a life sign, so they get Franklin prepped for a potential patient slash date and bring the ship in. They crack it open, and inside they find two cryogenic chambers. They clear the dust off the first to find a fresh-out-of-the-Indiana-Jones prop closet corpse which Garibaldi helpfully points out as dead, Franklin uses his magic wand to lead him over to the other industrial fridge-sized cryogenic chamber, which still has a living person in it. The woman inside begins to crash, ostensibly because some system that was keeping her alive until now is failing since the ship has been breached. They rush her to MedLab. On the ride up in the elevator, her pulse crashes and the elevator lights are acting oddly. Uh, Amos, meanwhile, in the brig, is having a nightmare. One of Garibaldi's hand-picked, high-quality officers casually discusses spacing all of the lurkers. But Garibaldi says he served in the war, and he's had that same dream that um, that Amos is having. Quality higher there, Mike. Uh, Ivanova, meanwhile, is investigating the Copernicus and doing a bit of percussive maintenance. She gets the heebie-jeebies, and we see a weird fisheye POV. Ivanova doesn't see anything, but we're clearly meant to understand that something is there, watching her. When we return to Amos and Garibaldi, Amos is awake and marginally more lucid. They have a a conversation in which Garibaldi, shock of all shocks, acts like an empathetic, 
reasonably decent human being. It's the fucking weirdest thing you've ever seen. He actually recommends therapy. My jaw hit the floor. I could not believe what I was seeing. Uh, Amos, in what is a surprisingly well-acted scene, considering that there are teeth marks all over the fucking walls from Dwight Schultz's performance so far, manages to uh, blow off Garibaldi's finely crafted advice and says he's perfectly fine and what could what more could anyone possibly want besides his dirty, disgusting scarf? Uh, I'll make a note here. It's a towel. Is oh, is it a towel? It's that's a towel. Nice. That's a nice. That's a nice touch. Here's where the garbage really begins. In med lab, the woman wakes up, seemingly having been saved from from her crashing earlier, from a nightmare to find Franklin petting her hair in a deeply unprofessional manner. Ivanova reports to the captain that her findings from the ship are that the husband should should be alive. There was no ship failure. Franklin investigates the corpse and finds it only weighs 90 pounds when it should be more like 180, and all the organs are missing. As this seems like a totally normal thing for a woman in stasis to do, Garibaldi assumes that she is the murder suspect. I will also point out that when you desiccate a corpse, it weighs less. Yes, also an excellent point. Franklin is already being a weirdo creeper and brushes off all attempts by Garibaldi and the captain to talk to this woman, whose name he does not know and who he has never spoken to because she is unconscious still. So that's his taste in women. When she does wake up in the middle of the autopsy and asks to talk to the doctor, he promptly ditches the autopsy. The first thing he tells her is how good she looks, and then he breaks it to her that it's 100 years in the future which she seems surprised at, which is fucking weird, considering she was on a cryogenic ship shot into deep space. Like, what was she expecting? I, I'm so confused. She... Listen, listen. She, she shot was, herself into space to be found by the first, si- the first like, signal that the ship could home in on. And she's like, what am I doing here? It's been a hundred years. What did you expect? You were looking for alien life out in the void. Why are you surprised to be found? Like, you should be shocked that it's humans, not like little green people. Anyway, I I digress. One of many issues with the episode. Then he tells her that her husband has died. Uh, I don't know if her overreacted reaction is part of the writing, and she's supposed to be acting incredibly overwrought, uh, or if she's just a terrible actress. But in either case... She does not present a particularly believable reaction to this news. Sometime later, question mark, he apparently takes her on a date to the Zocalo, uh, which seems like a real wild decision between, you know, disease and culture shock. But sure, he's real handsy in this scene. Um, He talks to her about the past, how humans got out among the stars. She's real bummed that the whole rocket yourself out into space as an ice cube was a waste of time, which is a legit concern. I can respect that. But she's also surprised that humans haven't outgrown violence in just a hundred years. Somebody was watching too much original series Star Trek, because I don't know where you could have gotten the idea that humans were ever going to outgrow violence, much less in a hundred years. That's fucking bananas. Jakar approaches them and shakes her hand, saying to go back to the past for her own good, which is a super random, weird... This is one line in the episode, and he just nails it. 
One line, is that the, not the only line, but he like though no, his other line it. in this episode is a Yogi Berraism. Yeah, but he's like, go back to the past; it's better there. And she has a vision flashback of being in the tank and looking, and something looking down on her from outside of the tank. Uh, she screams and passes out, and here we go again. Wakes up on Franklin's couch with him stroking her hands. <laughs> Okay. Is there no <laughs> medical None board of we this, can report Franklin to? None of this is medically ethical or cool, Steve. <laughs> it was closer than MedLab. Whatever, man. Whatever. He asks her about the oh, dream, buddy. and she cottons on pretty quick that she, that he's fishing for information. And he tells her that, yes, actually, okay, your husband we think maybe was murdered. And she's like, what you think? You think I killed him? And he's like, no, no, I, you know, I don't think you killed him. We think there might be something in there that killed with you that killed him. She freaks out. Rightfully. Franklin, the fucking creeper tells her to chill out. It's all okay. You're not alone here. You've got me. Then touches her face and kisses, not just touches her face, does this weird, awkward, like, petting motion, <laughs> and then kisses her. She does Franklin not at, know how to interact with, a, with other human beings? Not with ones that are awake, I bet. She, <laughs> at no point, I, I must point out, at no point, looks remotely interested or aroused. The, the closest thing to an actual emotion she shows in this scene is... What is happening to me right now? Which is super legit. But he manages to be like, that was inappropriate. As if it's fucking her fault, you gaslighting motherfucker. He then tells her to rest, but still doesn't take her to med lab. He's just like, sleep on my couch. That's safe and normal. Amos, meanwhile, has tracked down the Copernicus somehow. And acts like, this is familiar. And then flees when security confronts him and apparently goes to get fucked up because when we see him again, he's back on the Zocalo, high as a kite and screaming about the end times, uh, which interrupts Garibaldi's dinner. We'll get back to Garibaldi's dinner because it's probably my favorite part of the episode. He tells Garibaldi with surprising lucidity all of a sudden that death has come on that ship out of the past. Garibaldi, who is a weirdly like decent bro in this episode, seems inclined to listen and lets Amos lead him to where he believes he's followed death to, which is down below. They're too late, however, because we get an, a quick scene of that fisheye view surprising a, a lurker down below. And then we cut to Franklin doing an autopsy. And we find that an alien has been eaten, more or less, with all the organs removed, desiccated down to its bones or whatever. And he confirms that... It, it died the same way that Mariah's husband died. The woman's name is Mariah. I probably should have mentioned that. It's not really relevant. Franklin doesn't care. No reason why we should. Uh, Garibaldi, Sheridan, and Franklin discuss it, and it turns out that Mariah's ship passed close to the same moon that Amos was stationed on, where all 47 of the soldiers, except for Amos, died. Garibaldi looked this up. Franklin says that it couldn't have been Mariah. Well, Garibaldi believes that something used the ship to feed on the soldiers on the base 
and now it's headed here. Maybe it's Mariah. He doesn't know. Franklin says, couldn't have been Mariah. She was with him all night. Garibaldi makes the expected lewd joke, and Franklin protests that he doesn't sleep with his patients, but it is manifestly clear from this scene that nobody believes him. Nobody in this scene believes that Franklin doesn't sleep with his patients. I want that to be very, very clear. Okay? The League of Non-Aligned Worlds convenes a meeting in response to, to the, the, the killing, and they, specifically the Markab ambassador, and I believe this is the first time we get a Markab, uh, believe that the thank woman... You, thank you, edition uh, of new prosthetics, folks. Yeah. Uh, they believe this woman is a soldier of darkness, and they tell a story about how the last time the darkness rose, the it used soldiers, uh, you know, not not their own people, but soldiers. And after it fell, they all went into hiding, and now they're being called back to their places of power. It's a real good story, and turns out to be pretty accurate. Jakar is fascinated. He's like locked in on this story. He he wants to hear more. Sheridan is skeptical, but not dismissive of their concerns. He promises to get to the bottom of it. Londo, meanwhile, is like, you're all fucking crazy. Who believes any of this stuff? There's no mysterious new race. Get the fuck out of town. Uh, can't imagine why he would be dismissive of anyone investigating strange new species on the edge of space. Garibaldi decides to help by taking Amos down below and having him lead them to the monster. Amos says he has a connection to it and he can find it. They have a nice chat about Amos's experience in the war. And then Amos does a nutty runs after the monster, and leaves Garibaldi behind. Mariah and Franklin, meanwhile, are on the Copernicus alone. I feel like maybe Franklin shouldn't be left alone with her, but it's not my call. Uh, where she admits that things with her husband weren't great, try not to look fr thrilled, Franklin, and that in her dreams she's not alone. Something is in there with her, feeding on her. This sounds familiar. Garibaldi's bright idea to find the monster is to use Mariah. He thinks that if Amos had a connection with it, then Mariah must have one too. Franklin's not thrilled. The only thing that's going to be sucking the life out of Mariah is him, but decides to go along with it and insists on going with them. Uh, CNC gets a report of shots fired in Brown Sector. Brown Sector? That's probably a joke somewhere, but kind of all out of material at this point. And Sheridan rolls in with a full tactical squad to find Franklin treating some of the guards that Garibaldi pulled out and then went back in alone because he's a tough guy. They find Amos and Garibaldi, but they can't see the monster. Amos runs out and lures it into the open where it is killed with a massive fusillade of PPG shots. Later, in MedLab, Franklin treats Amos and tries to talk Mariah into staying on B5, so he can sleep with his patient like he said he didn't do. But she is headed back to Earth to catch up on the last hundred years. Uh, and so they can introduce more women for him to creep on. Because you can't throw away a recurring plot line that good. Sheridan, meanwhile, reverse engineers the Copernicus's path and makes a discovery. Before it detected B5's signal and automatically rerouted, the creature had programmed it to head for Zahadum. Dun, dun, dun! Coincidence? I don't think so. Last scene is the best way you could possibly end this garbage can episode. Uh, Jakar, in his sexy chess piece, reads the Book of Jaquan, wherein the Soldier of Darkness is depicted in shockingly accurate detail, considering it's fucking invisible. 
One wonders how they got that very good de depiction in the book of Jaquan, considering no one can see this thing. And that's it. He just is sitting there reading a book, looking sexy in the candlelight. Yeah. I apologize for the length of that summary, uh, but I feel like I made up for it with my very good Franklin bits. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, Franklin, Franklin sucks. He's so I, I bad in this episode. Sucks. I hate that he sucks because he's the only like recurring person of character. Er, yeah. He's the only person recurring of person of Yes. It's been it's been a long recording session. Okay. Not it's a person only, of character. He's, <laughs> he's a person of no character. Person But he, yes, I know what you mean. He's yeah, the only he's, recurring He's the only recurring person of color. And it it sucks that he's so awful. A black hole of ethical ethical value. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He's there is no medical ethics board in any country not run by Republicans that would not throw his ass out on the ground for his behavior in this episode. And his behavior only gets worse. I mean, worse in more varied ways. But yeah. no, he, yeah, he's... We'll burn that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> yeah, and this is just the, the tip of the turd floating in the pool that he that is Franklin's behavior. He's not not good. Um other stuff, I mean I feel like I have a whole bunch of notes in here, but like honestly, like I feel like I hit the high points pretty hard during the summary. So So um I do want to talk about Dwight Schultz because I so this yeah. is good like th this is an attempt at a horror episode and like <laughs> Like I like that it's, it's listed uh, as a horror episode in Lurker's Guide, which is the funniest thing I've ever read. I mean, Although, it's an I attempt at it. It's it's like I like. There's the spooky monster. Yeah, Franklin's it's, a monster. Sure, sure, that tracks. <laughs> there's also the Soldier of Darkness, less scary. I'll say that like something about the concept so this is an awful episode that i hate there are a couple of decent scenes one of which um <laughs> we haven't even talked about the dinner scene yet yes but okay okay but there's but there's something about the like soldier of darkness monster alien thing like somehow has like stuck with me that the the concept of like being asleep and helpless and having something just like feeding on you over like it's actually a pretty creepy concept the execution was just awful though yeah, yeah I, I think that like so i i my, one of my notes for this episode is that like out of like the only non ftl ways to do interstellar travel cryosleep is possibly the one that like is the most terrifying for me personally it's just like because like every time I see cryosleep used in a sci-fi series, it's just basically so you could bring people from the past and they could die. Yeah. Um, also, it's like it's a very like it's a very hopeless way to travel. Yeah. No. Extraordinarily. Yeah. yeah. And the 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 thing of Amos's experience as well, though, where where the creature killed off everybody else in his unit. And then kept him alive, just like continuously feeding on him. Yeah, gorged itself that, on his unit and then treated him like a juice box to take on the go. Yeah. Super, super creepy. Um, and and it, adds, it adds a, like, 
level of self-control that I think makes the monster more horrific. Because yeah. if it was just out there eating people, then like it's just a monster out there eating people. We've had that before. But the the monster like making the conscious decision to like, okay, well, it'll eat 47 people and then leave one alive. Yeah, as a snack. My favorite part of this episode, as I mentioned in the summary, speaking of snacks, is for sure Garibaldi's dinner scene in which Garibaldi is trying to have his dinner when Dwight Schultz busts in on his second Zocalo preaching <laughs> session and he's eating and his drowsy neighbor is eating what looks like spaghetti with live tentacle monster in it. It it looks like gah. Yeah, it does. Uh, and it starts to like crawl towards him and he kind of looks at it skeptically and the drowsy very politely like tilts it towards him like you want a bite and garibaldi is just like i'm trying to cut back and the whole interaction is weirdly wholesome <laughs> like yeah yeah because we've got the drazi dude being like hey you know i you're checking out my food do you want you want to try and and then garibaldi's actually not a dick about it no he's He's pretty. He's re as polite as Garibaldi ever gets about something like that. Um, but I just think it's very, it's exactly the kind of humor I want from Babylon Five about that kind of stuff, where it's like, here's a weird circumstance. It's kind of funny. It's I don't know. It's just great. It's funny. I think it's yeah. It's it's good because it's not like ew, that's gross. It's Garibaldi like responding to the situation like a polite human being would. Like, I think that's honestly, like, this episode is trying to make me like Garibaldi. By, yeah, like, that's the most, it... yeah, that's the most disconcerting part of this episode is that, like, Garibaldi's <laughs> actually good. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I think, like, my my notes for this episode are um, Garibaldi is 20% more sympathetic this season, which is enough to not make me, like, throw food at my computer screen when he's on it. Yeah. Um, and like, I think that like, it's a good thing that it's like, Oh, Hey, Garibaldi is like the one who suggests, Hey buddy, maybe you should, maybe we should get you some help. And like, you're probably, you're a little You're a little sick. We should get you some help. Yeah. Garibaldi yeah. suggesting therapy. I, I had forgotten that scene until I watched it through. Cause I haven't watched this episode in probably five years. And so I watching it, today and garibaldi suggesting therapy blew me out of the water because it's just garibaldi who like three episodes ago was on the verge of eating his gun is suddenly like hey buddy you want to talk to a counselor and i'm just like <laughs> tonal yeah. shift and and the the interaction with the other security officer, which like Garibaldi could have definitely had a stronger like, let's not joke about spacing people, but then that would set up a dangerous precedent considering that he's the one who jokes about spacing people. Yeah, and he probably hired and trained the guy, and yeah, I learned it yeah. from you. But the <laughs> uh, the like pointing out that Amos is you know. A homeless vet and like maybe his nightmares are about something that's real yeah 
I think I think so. As bad as this episode is, Dwight Schultz fucking kills it. Uh, Dwight Schultz, Dwight Schultz it. Yeah, which which <laughs> is not the same as killing perfect. it, but it is is still excellent. But I I do feel obligated to point out that there it's a very specific brand of of success. Yeah, it is. Um, I think he like this is this is the thing that like he he's a. Um, He's a very good actor for playing anxious people. Um, <laughs> That's a hell of a niche to find yourself I, in. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he he definitely. Uh, I, he also does. He also has a great voice that he can that like he he modulates very well, which like he, he's definitely got he's definitely got one of those theater voices that he can throw around there. Yeah. And yeah, he he is uh, my my legitimately my first notes are episode five, the log dark. Uh, why is a ship named after an Earth astronomer broadcasting a first contact message? And then let's see uh, how many seconds later, uh, four four minutes later, it's by God, that's Dwight Schultz music. <laughs> <laughs> um, Beautiful. I I. Truly believe that the perfect image for that for this episode is Dwight Schultz bursting out of a literal dumpster, <laughs> looking like some sort of manic Jack in the Box. There is no finer single like six second GIF to describe this episode than that moment. I I do have to say that he he might be kind of typecast for the you know yeah. anxious characters. Um, but at least he's not more typecast than Brad Dourif. Let's see. What other notes do we have for this? Uh, we get the return of the sexy Jakar chess piece, which God bless. Um, Jakar, Jakar gets a line in this episode, which is the warning that Jude mentioned, which is half. The quote is go back to the time you came from. The future isn't what it used to be. My note for this is. Andreas Gonzalez, please narrate my death poetically as you spell my imminent demise. <laughs> um, the second half of that quote is a Yogi Berraism, which is oh my God. hilarious to me. Oi. The original Yogiism is the future ain't what it used to be. But yeah, that that was just like I was like, why does that sound familiar? And then like it's in the show notes on the wiki for this episode, and I was just like this let me down a train of there are several baseball references in Babylon Five, like like baseball is a sport that is played in the future. There mm-hmm. are yeah. specific arguments that fans get over to about home run records in lower gravity. This is not a low key thing. This is a big fucking nerd thing, and we're gonna get into this next episode. But I believe Straczynski is originally from San Diego. Or, or yeah. he, he lived in there for a long time. Correct. Yeah. Is this why San Diego is duped? Did he just, was he just that <laughs> long of a suffering Padres fan? <laughs> Probably. Well, and it, it's a, it's an interesting quote. I love that it comes from Jakar because we know that Jakar has read extensively human literature and human yeah i have this mental stuff. picture now of jakar like reading up on human poetry and not like grasping that yeats and yogi berra are not like on the same level yeah <laughs> like 
as far as literary value. So he's like reading them at the same time and like <laughs> putting he, them on the same shelf. Maybe he's doing this by cultural significance. Possibly. Like about how much they affected culture. Maybe that's yeah, how maybe. Like, they're doing this. Yeah. Uh, Jaquad, the book of Jaquad is uh, it's turned be pretty handy here. It's Oh, yeah. As we will see, Jaquan apparently was both highly observant and a very detailed record keeper. And I feel like people should be paying more attention to the book of Jaquan. Yeah. We, the the uh, bit with the Markhab is also interesting, given their, their ultimate fate. Um, yeah. And, and the speculation that the plague is actually a shadows bioweapon. Yeah. Especially since they seem to have similar knowledge of the first shadow war to to that of the Narn, or at least the Book of Shaquan. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah, I wonder if that was uh, intentional. I wonder if there's anything in the in the extended uh lore about that being wiped out on purpose i mean th- this is mostly just to like uh hey this will probably get answered but it's like it's always interesting like how do interstellar wars get written down in pre-space flight religions but i'm sure that will be something that gets touched upon and that i will that we will we will go back to this in several months and one of you will be laughing at me <laughs> <laughs> or both in in other little bits from this episode that I liked, um, there's that quip about the Centauri ambassador being in league with the devil. Yeah. Which is like, mm. Yeah. Mm. A little on the nose. Yep. Yep. I think that's about it. I don't have anything else about this episode. No, nah, I think we've I think we've covered most of it. Franklin sucks. Franklin sucks. Somebody get that man in front of an ethics board. Honestly, I'm okay with just spacing him. I think this is the one time I'm 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 with Garibaldi on the efficacy of shunting someone out of an airlock. The Laura Rosalind solution to criminal justice. <laughs> Bingo. All right, um, we've already rambled about our favorite two or, or two of our uh, faces that we recognized. Uh, oh, I, I suppose we should also name the other thing that Dwight Schultz is known for, which is a little action TV show called The A-Team. I didn't know that. I mean, that that's that's the other thing that he was known for. That's what he's probably better known for. And what, you, no, no, probably no. not anymore. <laughs> like, he's, yeah, let's he's, be real. He's Barkley for, for all time now. He, yep. Lieutenant uh, Broccoli. Forever. There. I, you said it. I didn't. Uh. <laughs> Next time, we are going to be covering two episodes, Spider in the Web and Soulmates. So join us next time. And until then, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.
Recording.